are listening to the DJI podcast, a space to listen our online events, conversations, and seminars, hosted by the Transitional Justice Institute. With Professor Monica McWilliams, um, and we're really pleased to be able to make this public today. So What's the Crack is a weekly PhD organized seminar series at Ulster, um, currently chaired by myself, Katrina Mackel, and my colleague Nada Ahmed Mustafa Kamel Ahmed, uh, both PhD researchers in the Transitional Justice Institute. Um, Professor Monica McWilliams has kindly joined us today to discuss her memoir, Stand Up, Speak Out. Monica was a founding member of the Women's Coalition, member of the Legislative Assembly in Northern Ireland and Chief Commissioner of the Northern Ireland Human Rights Commission from 2005 to 2011. She's been the author of numerous publications, um, is a specialist in conflict resolution and is actively involved with women's groups in conflict zones worldwide. The Stand Up Speak Out charts Monica's activism over the decades from the civil rights protests in the 1960s to her involvement in the women's movement and the founding of the Women's Coalition. It also includes her role in the signing and implementation of the Good Friday Agreement. Following Monica's opening remarks, um, Professor Fidelma Ash will then act as a discussant. Um, Fidelma is a professor in politics and a member of the Transitional Justice Institute at Ulster and an expert on gender, sexuality and conflict transformation. She's written extensively in the area of gender, ethno-nationalist conflict and peacebuilding, focusing on the experiences of hard-to-reach groups marginalised from conflict tra transitional narratives, processes and institutions. Um, after the discussion, um, we'll hand over to my colleague Nada, um, who will open the floor and chair the Q&A. So I'd now hand over to Monica for her opening remarks. Thank you. Uh, thanks very much, Katrina, and it's great to be back with all my friends in TGI, who I miss very much seeing in person. And I just mentioned that had I not been grounded during the pandemic, this book might never have happened. Um, it was really, I needed to sit still as all academics know and as all PhD students know, um, you have to be quiet. And I had to shut up and sit down instead of standing up and speaking out. Um, and that's how the book starts. I actually talk about the difficulties. And because it's um, you, the audience today are the academics and scholars and activists, I wanted to talk about the difficulty of writing a book like this. Um, because I was so used to teaching my students and being a student myself um, in the art of objectivity, of analyzing and getting the facts. Um, and somehow I had to turn myself into a very different kind of person and stand in the shoes of being a, the subject of writing um, in a way that I had not been accustomed to. Um, writing in a very personal way, writing in a way that exposed um, me and potentially my family and potentially people who I had been close to and even indeed those I negotiated with and telling stories that had never been told before. And when I sat down to write the memoir, I did some research as a good researcher does, um, but I had to be leave it aside and write it um, from memory and tell the stories. Um, and I discovered things about my family and my family's history, which is in the first chapter. Um, and there were stories that couldn't be put in because there's still the safety issue in Northern Ireland. Um, I didn't want it to, um, to be just about the tragedies that I'd seen, and I'd seen plenty. Both as a student at Queen's, I described those years as 
some of my best days and some of my worst when someone was shot dead right in front of me. Um, when I was in a bar that was bombed, when I was in a house that was shot at, um, when my boyfriend was murdered um, and when other friends that I knew uh, were in serious trouble. But it isn't all about tragedies. It's also about the uplifting moments of being involved in the peace talks of um, forming a women's coalition against the odds in six weeks, getting to the peace table. Um, and that was a memorable day. Um, and I write about that in the book and sitting down with those who were the big politicians in Northern Ireland. We were outsiders who had suddenly found our way inside. And we claimed the space to be involved as women at the table. And then the years of the assembly, which were rough and tough. And even getting to yes after the agreement was hard. Um, and then the days of being chief commissioner of human rights. But I start on a very personal note. What were you like as a child? What were your value systems? What kind of upbringing did you have? Um, so those early years were important and you've mentioned how I cut my teeth in the civil rights movement, aged eight, 15. I was 15 years old when I went on the first march down McGilligan Strand. And I talk about the fact that the last thing I expected was to face CS gas and rubber bullets. Um, and that excessive repression does make people angry and makes them rise up. But little did I know that we would live another 30 years of that. Um, and I speak about that. And I also speak about the friendship that I had as a Catholic woman raised in a farm in County Derry that I made with David Irvine, a loyalist working class man in the shadow of the shipyards. And how that friendship ended up was almost like a member of our own, my family, in that I was asked to speak at his funeral. Um, and I miss him actually, both personally and politically in terms of um, how we engaged and the importance of that engagement. And I talk about finding the humanity in the other, um, about how to legitimize those, about the experience of being with Mandela in South Africa. And I important those three days were in terms of what I learned there. Um, so it's a long story. It was 700 pages. It was cut down to 300 um, by a very good editor. And um, I'm glad it was, but I'm going to donate all those papers to the Linen Hall Library, which has um, an exhibition at the minute on extraordinary women. Um, and they're from all over, as you would imagine in Northern Ireland. But it was one of the reasons why I wrote it. And I think in the last paragraph, I wrote that I didn't want women to end up as a footnote. And they have the role of Mo Molum, the role of Martha Pope, um, who was the chief of staff for George Mitchell, who played a tremendous role. And every politician will tell you that. But does anyone know her name? Now, fortunately, Ulster University gave her an honorary doctorate, which I put her forward for a couple of years ago. And she was delighted, absolutely delighted, because she loved the place. Um, and she loved the honour of being recognised in that way. So I finished the preface, the introduction, by saying my intention with the book was to leave behind a record of those times and also to correct some of the inaccuracies that I'd found in a number of other accounts of the peace process, particularly those of male commentators and historians who do not think what women did was important enough to document. I hope the book will help people to gain a deeper understanding of the work of peace building and why it matters to have women at the table 
and how seeing the humanity in each other can lead to transformation. So that's a, a brief synopsis um, of, of some of the aims that I had in writing the book and what pushed me into writing it. Um, and I describe in many ways how I fell. I was an accidental activist. Um, that conflict can do that. You're an ordinary woman falling into extraordinary times and still am in extraordinary times as we all are at the moment. Um, and I talk about my teaching um, and how formative that was, and particularly the women's studies um, access courses for women leaders in the community who came in with no formal education and how Ulster University gave me that opportunity to start up those new programs. The students didn't have to pay fees. They were given places in the creche. I negotiated all of that. And many of them went on to do their degrees and postgraduate courses. Um, and how I exchanged those programs with the women who were leading courses in the Republic of Ireland and getting a bus and exchanging students north and south. And the, both sets of students were terrified. It was as if we lived in two different planets. Um, now you can ask how much has changed. Um, and those exchanges were enormously important. And I say in the book that the exchanges with other cultures for our politicians was probably one of the most important things of all. Um, getting us out of this situation, listening to others and how they had made their transition, um, engaging with other cultures and seeing the small mindedness, the narrow mindedness, the conservatism of what we were facing. Not everybody morphs, I mean, that poster, we have goodbye to dinosaurs. Well, the question is, did they change? Did they morph? Are they still around? I don't ask those questions in the book. I leave it up to the reader. Um, but that's when I now do the work internationally and the book finishes on the last chapter, it is about the international work and the mistakes we made in Northern Ireland, but also the lessons from those and how we can exchange the experiences of having lived as negotiators and activists with others who are currently in the same situation and I'm currently working with the women in the Syrian opposition in Geneva on their negotiating team. So I'll stop there. Thank you very much, Monica. Um, the book sounds fascinating. I can't wait to get my copy and get stuck in. Um, so we'll hand over now to Fidelma. Thanks, Katrina. Thanks for the introduction as well. Um, Monica, it's great to see you. Um, as you say, it's been too long. Glad to see you back at TJI. Um, first, uh, I want to say congratulations on the publication of such a fabulous book. Um, books are not easy to write. Uh, any kind of book takes a lot of blood, sweat and tears, um, but it is, it is a fabulous book and I really enjoyed reading it. Um, I love the title. I love the story behind the title. I love that photograph of you on the front cover because it says to me, fasten your seatbelts because you don't know what's coming, <laughs> but what's coming isn't going to shut up and sit down. So I, I, I love that as well. And I was also struck by the many contributions that the book makes. Um, it stands as a record of women's activism, 
through very difficult times. Um, so many women are mentioned in the book and they, they don't feature in mainstream books. And every time I came across a name, some of them I knew, some of them I didn't know uh, personally, I, I felt I was affected by it. And I think there'll be many readers who will, who will have that response to the book. Um, it, you know, it elicited a, a feeling of, you know, finally, um, these women are being recognized for their role um, and are there in our history. So you, thank you so much uh, for doing that. Um, also, I think the book reclaims um, the story of women's activism and also importantly highlights um, the many gender inequalities and the gender harms of the conflict as well. And, and it does that over an extended period of time as well, um, which I think will be really important to, to scholars and anyone who's interested in that time period. Um, and of course, it speaks to broader international issues about the barriers that women face um, during times of conflict and peace building, but also um, inspires um, women to look for those opportunities where they can make a real difference. And it, it's not easy. And I think you explain that beautifully. You don't um, dismiss the difficulties of that period of time for women, um, but you do inspire and you do um, give hope in the book, I think beyond these shores, if you like. Um, every reader is going to pick up on particular aspects of the book. And um, you know, I'm working on contemporary constitutional uh, issues. So of course, you know what academics are like, they'll ask the questions that interest them. Um, but I think there are great lessons to be learned um, in terms of what, what we do next or what we do now or what we should be thinking about. Um, now, certainly there has been changes since the period, definitely of the GFA. Um, there has been a tonal change in formal politics. And all that misogyny that you highlight has now moved on to social media. So mm -hmm. we haven't lost it. It's just found a new home. Um, the challenges, I think, for the women's sector remain in terms of influencing policy, influencing the broader political narratives. We see the same underfunding. We see the same dismissal of people in that sector. Um, and of course, one of the issues that the book deals with for me, um, as somebody who's lived here, is the struggle to extend equality and justice and rights in a context 
where those very terms are disputed in terms of their value. So we face a new period of constitutional change. And as I say, we face still many of the old problems that your book details. They may have become reframed slightly, but they're all still there. And I'm wondering, have you any advice for us in terms of, sorry, in I can't read a book like yours and not ask this question. It would be impossible. Sorry. Um, have you any advice on how, through these constitutional changes, Brexit and talk of a shared island, all of those things that are going on at the minute, how we keep the engine moving forward on the issue of rights and justice? Through you know through all, through all of these different changes and all of these different challenges. Um, very tough question. I mean, I try at the end of the book, Fidelma, to address some of that. I mean, obviously, the pandemic and, and Brexit were the and climate change and all of those issues were coming to the fore as I was concluding the book. And well, climate change was there, and indeed Brexit was only since twenty sixteen. We could see well, the consequences of that, um, and you know there are other issues that I could have gone into in more depth. The legacy, for instance, is one of them, yeah. um, and I do address that and the mistakes we made. But perhaps let me start with the mistakes we made. Um, in that first, it's really important to be at the negotiating table if you're going to negotiate those constitutional changes, um, and that's why you ask who's not at the table. Um, I went to a conference by Women's Aid on Thursday. It was the International Day of Elimination of against Violence Against Women and Girls. It was a fantastic conference. Um, one of the few conferences where the women uh, got up and started singing um, the words of some of the work that they'd been involved in. Um, and it was a, an organized choir. It was just amazing. Um, but they called themselves experts by experience. And I hadn't come across this term when I wrote my book, Bringing It Out in the Open, um, experts by experience, because normally we have academics as experts um, with professionals who enter into particular vocations of health, social services, um, and they're, you know, professional experience and experts. Um, and then we should have ex experts by experience, the people who have lived it, the people who haven't had their rights attended to. Um, and they're the people that are often not at the table. Um, and as you know, the role of civil society has become crucial, particularly in these negotiations around Brexit. Uh, with people whose voices we hadn't heard, and I say this in the book, um, when the business community stood up and argued for the referendum, when they stood up and argued that us at the table as peace negotiators needed to listen to them. And there were politicians at the table that said, why would you get involved? Keep your nose out of politics. As if they didn't have something to say. Um, and the same went for the voluntary sector. You know, all of the sectors who were engaged day and daily. We didn't have a Bosnia in Northern Ireland because we had a very thriving community sector mm -hmm. um, that was at the interface, keeping people um, engaged in how to resolve disputes. They were experts by experience and they need to be at, uh, at the talks on constitutional change. Um, so that's one thing I'd say, who's not at the table. And now we know that in terms of youth, 
and Graham Simpson, who you know, um, and it works with Brandon, wrote the report for the UN on, um, on why youth should be more involved in these constitutional changes. And that to me is where I'm putting all my efforts these days in a project called Politics in Action in Schools in Northern Ireland, where we're bringing the young people from predominantly working class secondary schools that are told they're failures at the age of 10 and segregated by our stupid system. Um, and they're now being engaged uh, in fantastic political discussions about Brexit and about what a shared island might look like um, and what the protocol benefits might look like, given all the information that they're fed and they want to take that on and engage in it. And so it's about how issues are reframed. But one of the mistakes we made was not having um, an implementation process, a validation process. And as women, I knew that, that you need targets and timetables. Um, I made a mistake when I wrote the right of women to full and equal political participation, that I left it as an aspiration in the Good Friday Agreement. Um, whereas when we talked about prisoner releases, they were negotiated in terms of a date for two years um, and how that would be handled by a, um, a, those overseeing the process. So oversight is really important. Monitoring is really important. But first you have to get the issues into the constitution. You've got to get the issues in, and I call the Good Friday Agreement our constitution. Um, it's very much a constitutional document. It wasn't written as a legal document. Um, and you saw how important that was in terms of the policing, the changes to policing. Um, when that did come the, the act and the 19, um, the act that followed the 1998 agreement, the Northern Ireland Act, it was really, really important. We had civil society organizations, human rights organizations. At that time, it was the Committee on the Administration of Justice who played a leading role in ensuring that those human rights provisions in the agreement were enforced, um, played a reading role in the reforms to policing, which are now held up as a model. And it was good to hear that first chief constable um, saying when New York came on board, it's the human rights framework that is going to lead for us and how to police in the future. Um, so building those frameworks and having a foundational document that speaks to those uh, was really important. Um, so if I had to go back, I would insist that there would be an oversight implementation committee made up of the parties who made the agreement. And that included the parties that uh, didn't succeed in the next election. Um, it became a very exclusive process instead of inclusive, which the peace talks hadn't made an attempt to do because they had the armed groups that were aligned to the political parties, had their spokespersons at the table, and that's how we got in as women. But it became very exclusive after that once the whole issue boiled down to governance and power sharing. But there's much more to the agreement than that. If I had to go back, I wouldn't have allowed the Bill of Rights to remain as an aspiration rather than a constitutional guarantee. And it fell off the table over the word scope so that the word scope was interpreted as just scoping and advice that could be left to one side. And now we see that even the ad hoc committee up at the assembly is having a huge difficulties of saying whether it was principles that were to be brought forward or human rights that were to be brought forward. Um, and in the chapter on the, that, I write about that. Um, and, I, and I write about how, as a negotiator, the working class loyalist parties spoke up for those rights and wanted those rights extended. 
um, because they knew what it had been like during the days of big house unionism and how they had not benefited. And they made that case, which was better coming from them. Um, so those are the issues. But at the end of the day, too, it's also about dialogue. It's about engaging people who differ from you. And it's about ensuring that human rights are also about those who that you disagree with. You, they're their protection, too. And if ever uh, human rights were to be defended, it should be now, Fidelma. We don't talk about minorities in terms of Protestants and Catholics anymore, British or Irish. There's an equivalency there. Um, the, the times have changed. So it's a protection for all, and the chapter's called Human Rights for All. But it really is about attitudinal change and attitudinal thinking, that those rights are for me. Um, and you saw then in the book, if you've read it, the row that broke out about Ian Knox. I loved Ian Knox's cartoon, where after the day after I presented it, he had um, Daphne Trimble and Jonathan Bell picking candy out of a candy, out of a counter. And me standing like a school teacher saying, this is not a pick and mix. Um, and that to me summed it up. Human rights are not a pick and mix. They're the international standards. But to get that across the line was very hard. And we didn't have a committee. We didn't have a monitoring committee. We didn't have an oversight committee. Um, and it's good. I was hoping that the politicians in the assembly and the ad hoc committee would come to some agreement. Um, but once again, we find there's a stalemate. Um, so there are a number of mistakes that we made from which others can learn. But one of the ones that I think now in constitutional change with the Syrian women that I'm involved in is that if, and it was the same in Ireland actually, that if you married a man from outside the country, you did not have the right to pass on inheritance. And so those men who are now passed away, those women cannot hand on the, their inheritance or their name or get a passport. Now that's hugely important in relation to constitutions. And that's huge. Nobody thinks about that in terms of when you go to negotiate a peace agreement. Um, and I said to the women, it's really important that you raise it. Also, they're raising the rights of those women in detention who are being tortured and young girls um, and speaking up and ensuring that those issues are attended to when it comes to tran transitional justice. They're the same issues you've been raising and the same issues that Catherine and all of my colleagues um, in, in TGI raised, um, the gender harms that are so easily forgotten. Um, so, you know, that's a very long answer. Who's at the table? What issues get put on the table? What falls off the table? Where do you have monitoring? Yeah, you do for the hard issues of disarmament and decommissioning and demobilization, but do you have it for these other issues? Did we have it for integrated education? No. Did we have it for Bill of Rights? No. Did we have it for um, a civic forum? All of the issues that were regarded as soft, but which actually were for, make for a more sustainable peace, actually fell off the table. Monica, thank you so much um, for all those insights and again for writing such a fabulous book. I think my time has uh, come. <laughs> so I think I'm going to hand you back to uh, Katrina. Uh, I think they're going to take some questions from the floor. Thank you both, Monica and Padama, for a really interesting discussion. Um, in particular, Monica, some of your reflections there on, on lessons and human rights and constitutional issues. Um, so I'm going to hand over now to Nada, um, and Nada's going to chair the question and answer session for us. Thank you. 
Hello, everyone. Uh, thank you very much, Monica, for this uh, fascinating and congratulations on your book. Uh, coming from the Middle East, I would love to know more about your experience with the Syrian conflict, uh, obviously, but if I have time to ask my question, I will. Um, and then thank you very much, Fidelma, for your very insightful input. Uh, so we do have a couple of questions, one from Eilish Rooney. Uh, she's asking uh, women's rights to participate in politics and public life and settling, setting aside the absence of implementation what reflections do you have um, on the other things that would have been included for women in the agreement text? Uh, and she asks, what can be done about the stalemate around rights here, if there is any recommendation? So it's a double question. I can, if you want to ask, I answer the first and I can repeat the second one afterwards. Um, <laughs> thanks, Elish. I actually mentioned Elish's importance to our teaching in the book in terms of intersectionality, which when we started in the early 80s, it was a very new concept, but it was one that Elish was bringing to the table um, in terms of the fact that, you know, we have working class women, we have disabled women, we have women from different race backgrounds, um, and the importance of that, that all those lives matter. Um, and what we thought about that when we wrote that section, um, there's a piece where I refer to the language that we were using um, instead of ethnicity and race, they were talking about color and we, it's important that even we pick up on that when you're negotiating um, to make sure those issues were in, in that rights section. But we did manage to get that right in and I think I've told the story before of how we got it in was that when we looked at it, we thought this is not speaking to women. Women will not see themselves in this. Um, yes, sectarianism was addressed, um, but there was nothing in terms of gender. And we said to the British official that um, we recalled the words of Cathy Harkin that we had lived in an armed patriarchy. Um, and because he was asking us to explain the rationale for why we needed the right of women to full and equal political participation to be in that section. And we said, well, we suffered too. We were silenced um, and women had um, a special role here. Not only did they, were they active, but their rights were never recognized. And this needs to be in the agreement. I didn't think it would make its way in, but I was told afterwards by some of the other negotiators at three o'clock on Thursday morning before Good Friday that everybody was so exhausted that they thought they had to throw us a bone. Um, and that was our bone. Um, and nobody fought against taking it out at that stage. And partly because there was a recognition the Women's Coalition had played a good role in facilitating the media and, and therefore we deserved to have some recognition in the negotiation of the final agreement. Um, but here's the thing, it was just an aspiration. We didn't put affirmative action in. We didn't put a quota in. If I had to go back, I would. And I would ask for a percentage and I would say, but you know, the I would say what by what year and what time um, this had to be um, put in. The UN resolution on women, peace and security didn't come in until two years afterwards. Now, had we had that at the time, we could have quoted that as an international standard and said that that has to be adhered to uh, by both governments, um, but it wasn't. And today it's still left to the political goodwill 
despite the fact that, you know, in many ways, the consociation of the way our government is formed is affirmative action. And people don't, you know, refer to that as affirmative action based on identities and cross community and all of that. Those are all forms of affirmative action. Um, and likewise, Eilish will remember when the reforms of policing were happening, we stood up again and said, there's a quota here for Catholics in terms of 50% recruits because of the underrepresentation, which is allowed by international standards. But there's no quota here for women, for gender. Um, why did that happen? And Morris Hayes told me as one of the people on the commission, on the patent commission, that they knew they were going to have a hard enough time getting that quota passed that he thought that it wouldn't ever even get onto the cards to have a quota for gender. But in fact, there were even as few women in the police as there were Catholics. So why was one seen as more important? And in fact, I now know that women have benefited from that quota when they realized that they could bring that in. But that's still the case today. There are so many parties that still fight against affirmative action, still see it as discrimination instead of seeing it as positive action where there's an underrepresentation. Um, so that, that's quite difficult uh, to get through. And I, when we drafted the Bill of Rights, we actually um, drafted one of those rights according to those terms, taking advice um, to ensure that we uh, were able to put in where there's an underrepresentation, um, that we address that as discrimination. Um, but that still um, is left to be uh, decided upon. So the stalemate, I think, is the second part of that question, Nada, if I'm right, the current stalemate. Um, and it's sad to say 23 years later that there is still a stalemate if, if uh, Eilish is referring to the Bill of Rights and the Ad Hoc Committee. Um, but this is where the two governments are going to have to stand in. Um, she was asking, yes. In the absence of um, the Europe, I mean, you all know that Boris Johnson is currently arguing for a review of the Human Rights Act. Um, and that was even the case when I was chief commissioner. Um, and on the grounds of back to that old issue of British sovereignty. Um, and they wanted a, they didn't want a Bill of Rights for Northern Ireland. They thought a separate chapter on a British Bill of Rights would suffice. Well, that's not what peace agreement said. Um, and it's not one that would have passed in terms of even cross community support here. Um, so the very idea that something that we negotiated, which was the European Convention rights to be brought into domestic law, should now be um, reviewed, should, the currency of which is being brought into question in relation again to sovereignty, Britain deciding and making its own, in fact, England deciding and making its own decisions on these issues, because Scotland certainly isn't. Um, and that's a very serious question. What will we do without those rights being protected? Um, and that's the issue. I would suggest both that and the Charter of Rights for the island of Ireland, which was also in the peace agreement and would stand as a protection for unionists in relation to the equivalency of the leveling up of rights um, because in some of the cases I referred to, the Republic of Ireland has to step up also. The coroner's court is a perfect example of where there is no equivalency to our courts, our coroner's courts here in Northern Ireland, which are judicially led, whereas in the Republic, it's local doctors 
that are holding coroner's hearings on some of the most difficult and serious cases. So the levelling up um, through the Charter and the most important um, in terms of the enforcement of rights through the Bill of Rights needs to be taken seriously. And if not at the Assembly, then by Westminster, because the agreement did say it would happen at Westminster. Now, Westminster has stepped in and has addressed the issue of same-sex marriage, the issue of terminations of pregnancy, um, um, and it has stepped in on those issues. So the question, it begs the question, why has it not stepped in on this issue that was in the peace agreement? Well, obviously, with the Conservative government, we know why. Um, so there is a, a very big constitutional issue still hanging there that needs to be addressed, particularly at a time when I say that transitional justice mechanisms like bills of rights show you how not to have a reoccurrence of your conflict. And actually, just uh, I will go back to the two other questions in a minute. But uh, Eilish is asking, actually, like in related to that, uh, she says that the Bill of Rights submitted by the commission you headed was groundbreaking. Uh, does it have a future, in your opinion? It definitely does. It was the template. But let me say, we were human rights commissioners. So we took the international standards, which most people forget when they read the agreement, those words were in the peace agreement. It wasn't just the particular circumstances of Northern Ireland, which everyone unfortunately still reads as Catholic, Protestant, British or Irish. But actually, I mean, a Bill of Rights is a dynamic instrument. It's not just speaking to the past, it's speaking to the future. So our demographics have changed. So there has to be rights for ethnic minorities. There has to be rights for disability. There has to be even children's rights, the rights they hadn't thought about when the Universal Declaration was first written, um, the rights, environmental rights. So the focus here was all, what did the war do to you? And it wasn't looking at those issues. Um, and in terms of the template that we produced, we were commissioners adhering to the international standards. Now, the question that then has to arise out of that is, what do the politicians do when they get the advice from us. And we consulted on a pro bono basis, the top lawyers um, internationally, but also at Westminster and the Republic gave their advice to us so that we could absolutely make sure that we weren't writing things into the advice that would have unintended consequences. So it's one of the things I'm most proud of. And I was pleased to see them addressing it at the assembly. Um, and they, you know, people misunderstood what we said about social and economic rights. Um, I recently had the opportunity to address a number of politicians who were around at the time, and they said, we didn't realize that's what you meant by that. The notion of progressive realization, which we now understand in terms of the pandemic, it took the pandemic to create this understanding that everyone, if you don't protect everyone's health, then disease will spread very quickly because it doesn't distinguish between classes or borders. Um, so that I think it took something and it often does take a tragedy or a disease or an pandemic um, to make people realize what you were trying to say and that it isn't, um, it, it isn't the most ridiculous thing in the world to have social and economic rights addressed in that way. Um, so 
I'm pleased that there's a little bit more thinking around that today, but it's, it's, it's still not where we want to be in Northern Ireland three decades after a peace agreement. And, and we know that. So all I can say is that ad hoc committee needs to get back to work and that there needs to be, instead of a clashing interpretation, which DUP says was only a list of principles. Well, the Good Friday Agreement has a list of principles already in it. So a pillar of rights, you know, it's not about a list of principles. My preamble that I wrote to the Bill of Rights was a list of principles. That's what the preamble is. Then you go on from that and state what the rights are because they're going to be judiciable. Um, so that debate needs to happen at the local assembly. I was hoping it would. Um, and if it's not Westminster, then we'll have to step forward and either decide that it's going to implement that part of the agreement or in three decades time, where will we be? Where will this island be? Where will the islands be? And will there be a Bill of Rights then that speaks to a very different set of circumstances? Thank you very much, Monica. So the next question we have is from Gabrielle Williams, uh, and she is asking uh, if the increasing number of women in elected politics in Northern Ireland is changing the discussion or leading to a greater level of gender equality when it comes to policy and implementation, or is it uh, deepening the collective and is it actually deepening the collective understanding of what constitutes violence? Um. It's definitely good that we have 30% and 30% is getting towards a critical mass. It's not 50% in terms of representation, but it's not 10%, which is what I had when I first went into the first assembly. Um, but it's taken a long time to get to 30%. Um, does it make a difference? It does make a difference. But as I've said in the book, it's progressive women that you want to be in those positions. Otherwise, just bring a photograph and set it in front of you. Um, and so you just have to stand up and speak out on the issues that are going to be progressive. Um, and that's what I like to see when I hear the debates. And some of them have been on those issues. Um, did it, will it make a difference? Role models? Yes. Does it make a difference to the language? Yes, they're being called out, as we saw recently in terms of some of the social media. Um, I had to face it. It was face to face when I was there, which was hard. And particularly if you have children and you're coming home at night and they're asking why these things are being said. Um, but I, I think it's really important that th that representation increases. It's good to see some of those parties have a 50% quota for their executives and committees. And every party now has um, either for opportunistic reasons or because they believe in it and I'm never sure which, um, are actually pushing women into leadership positions. So, um, but the other thing is, I think women have to encourage other women. Women can be quite tough. They were quite tough on me and rightly so, but I would have needed a lot of support when you're in those positions. It's a lonely old place to be. Um, and it's good to have good support of women around you and men, because there were men in the coalition who supported us and said that we want women to be in the leadership position, but we're here to support that role of other women, for women. Um, so that is good to hear as well. And it's really important when you get um, support in political forums from other men, 
you know, calling out the insults, calling out the problems, calling out the issues, because uh, it shouldn't be left to women alone. We need champions. Um, and the more feminists there are amongst the male politicians, the better for us all. Thank you very much. Uh, the next question is, uh, you, you spoke about from Diane Kirby, uh, and she's asking uh, that you spoke about stories that you haven't told owing to present security concerns uh, and sensitivities. Would you at some point consider recording them for future uh, release with a time and limited embargo or something in order to ensure a full historical record for future scholars? There's two things to that. One, I had to be very careful. Um, in that the people I was speaking about are still living. And so our libel laws, our defamation laws, could end you up in court very easily. And I've already been there when I was an assembly member. So I didn't um, intend to go back down that road. Um, and so, um, and that was with the BBC supporting me in what I had said when I stood up and spoke out. Now it's good to see some of that is now changing. Um, and the sooner the better, but I, that's the one thing you have to be careful of, and that's what I did, and some of the stories had to come out for that reason. Um, the others are um, were to do with my family um, and the places that they still live in, um, and some of those I was able to tell, and some of those I had to be very careful about because they live in, in areas that they could still be targeted. Um, and so I, and everyone should be careful about that. It was the same for us in the coalition. I say in the book that Pearl had no security in her home when she was called a traitor. Um, but the people calling her a traitor had plenty of security. And so we had to be very careful that her windows were not broken and my windows were broken. Our office windows were broken. Um, and so, you know, there are still nothing comparable to what we went through in those days. But there are people still um, who feel nervous um, that they could be identified and, and in the places they live, they could be targeted. So will the day ever come? Yes, it, can, it most certainly can, will come, but those people will be dead. Um, and that's a sad reflection of the situation that we're still in. Uh, we have a following. Thank you very much. Uh, we have a following question from Catherine Shannon asking what role can the United States play in pressuring in the British government to finally move on the issue of human rights legislation and how can civil society work towards this goal? The, well, the United States, as Catherine knows, played a huge role during the peace negotiations. Both our US consuls here in Belfast and those in Congress and the champions in the Congress who saw the way out and supported um, the personal chemistry that was already existing um, between Clinton, Blair and Ahern. And that did make a difference. Um, and innovative and creative ideas um, and pushing people and supporting people um, often comes from third parties. Um, as it did from South Africa, as well as from the United States. So the role the United States is playing at the minute is that it's taking testimony and evidence. And I recently gave evidence to the European Committee um, on the issue. Um, they were concerned about what happened last spring in the riots on Lanark Way and Chankill. Um, they are concerned about the protocol. 
and they do play a huge role. The Ways and Means Committee plays a huge role, chaired by Richie Neal, um, in the determination of what the Conservative government think the United States are going to do in making a trade deal. Um, and the United States has its own views um, on that in relation to the work that they had put in uh, to Northern Ireland to make sure that this peace agreement worked. On the human rights issue, uh, we've given, I've given loads of evidence to the committees during my time as Chief Commissioner with my fellow commissioners. Um, and I've no doubt that, and I hope, the current Human Rights Commission continues to liaise with Congress on those issues. Um, it is now following up on the legacy issue, as you know. They issued, 16 of them issued a letter, co-signed as Congress members, um, on the statute of limitations which breaks the international human rights standards. Um, and now you could actually say it's a bit rich of the United States to talk about how it will apply the standards to war situations in terms of international human rights standards. Um, but it takes a very active role still on those. And it tends to be many of the people who were around at that time as well, as well as some new ones. And I, I dare say President Biden um, given his own inheritance from his own family, that makes a difference as it does for other diasporas, as we see in other conflict situations. So the chemistry, the individuals, the leaders, um, and in particular, the substantive issues that are really important by people who know about this stuff, who've read the agreement and are able to read it back to those who think they can bypass it. And so it's really, really important to have those third parties still in place. What happened, I think, after we signed the agreement was a bit, I compared a bit like domestic violence in the work that I did with women, that when they leave that relationship, everyone thinks they're fine. And, and the aftercare is not attended to. And those are the most difficult and dangerous times, as we know, for women. But they're also were our most difficult and dangerous times, the Oma bomb. For instance, um, the little three little children whose funerals I attended in Balamani over the Drum Cree period. Um, and then, you know, that referendum was very, very hard, hard won to get people to say yes. And then again, people took their eye off because we had said yes and had moved on. So I pay tribute to the United States for getting involved and for stepping up that involvement because it's exceptionally important. And it's exceptionally important for both sides to understand that everyone thinks it's the greening of America um, because most of them can trace their heritage through the Irish side rather than the Ulster Scots side. But there are plenty of people in Congress who stood up and spoke, including Senator Kennedy, um, about the role of the Ulster Scots in the United States. Um, and it's very important that they understand that if they're pushing for a Bill of Rights, it's a Bill of Rights for all. It's not a Bill of Rights for those who call themselves green. Thank you very much. Uh, there's another question from Gabrielle Williams who is asking, given the significance of the community sector in Northern Ireland, does any inadequate funding for the sector risks uh, pose a risk to peace, according to? <laughs> Yeah, and if you read the book, there's a whole chapter on civil society and community foundations and community organizations that played a huge role here. 
um, and we were able to give, I chaired the Northern Ireland Poverty Lobby, which we set up um, in response to a piece of legislation called um, the Payment for Debt Act. Um, I tell a funny story that my accent, and it's probably an Ulster Scots accent, doesn't, didn't pronounce debt properly. And my students often thought I was talking about the Payment for Death Act instead of the Payment for Debt Act. Um, and we succeeded in getting that act thrown out because it was leaving people really poor. And in one case, one woman's story I tell of how she ended her life, a mother in turf lodge, where there was actually polio and enormous disadvantage. And she saw no way out. Um, and that's how we came together as activists to form that poverty lobby and Gingerbread, Ginger the Government Up for More Bread, which was an organization for prisoners' wives and single parents and for those who had babies outside of marriage, which was a very hard time for them to get benefits. Um, and all the time changing, are advocating for the changes of policy and legislation, um, not just uh, helping claimants. And that's the role civil society is still playing today, as we see with austerity cuts, with food banks, with all of the issues that it's hard to believe in a, in a country in the global north, that these things are, are needed and that civil society is doing that work. Um, the underfunding, that back then it was people were getting their funding cut because they were seen as being too close to the armed groups on one side or the other. Um, and that was an issue and potentially that may still remain an issue um, in who takes risks for peace. And it seems to me it's the International Fund for Ireland um, um, that is taking most of those risks in, in areas because it's not seen as taxpayers' money. It is seen as funding coming from Canada, Australia and the United States. Um, and they're the ones that are currently um, trying to address with my good friend Avla Kamuri and uh, chairing that group on the peace walls that had a target to be pulled down by 2023, which will not now be met, but asking those really important questions in civil society. How do you keep people safe? What is it that's needed on both sides of those walls before you start thinking about tearing down bricks? Um, and it's the local communities that are standing up and saying what is needed. Um, needs to be addressed. Um, and there are many other organizations, the European Union, um, with now the final round of peace funds, peace five, um, taking risks and putting money in those places because it sees that that's where the sustainable peace building is happening. I've, I noticed it most with the prisoners from prisoners to peace project that one of the European fund programs funded an excellent project where the prisoners start going into the schools together on both sides to address the next generation. And it was evaluated very highly and then stopped. Um, and there, that was a gap. And Fidelma has written about some of the male dominated um, programs that have been funded um, from the prisoners to peace when it didn't recognize the role that women played in those communities and how women lost out often um, in terms of their leadership roles that they played when the men were in prison. Um, and all of that needs to be attended to. 
But what I do take hope from is that the women's movement is still is active and really active, and the women's centres are really active. Um, I, I work still with Women's Aid, um, and they are underfunded, of course, but they have never ceased to go up to that assembly and give evidence for the need for changes to legislation, coercive control being the perfect example, stocking now the next piece of legislation, upskirting all of the issues that are really important and that they're up there giving evidence and very effective in doing so. Um, and the one I write about in the book, which is about the fatalities and the femicide, and now a piece of legislation on non-fatal strangulation. I think it's a strange term, non-fatal. If anyone tries to strangle you, you don't think about it as being non-fatal. Um, but at least the legislation is now addressing it. So that's the role that I'm still I'm involved in in civil society. And of course, there's going to be underfunding for those issues. And of course, you're forced to go elsewhere to look for it. But um, I also do think that if the International Fund for Ireland's funds run out and the European Union funds run out, then this current executive is really going to be in trouble in terms of addressing how, where it puts its funding and where the funding that paid dividends to our peace process um, shouldn't suddenly stop um, because that's a real danger. Thank you very much, uh, Monica, for all your answer. It was fascinating. Unfortunately, we'll have to wrap up. Um, but uh, that was like a real delight. And congratulations again for your book that uh, I'll be more than happy to read and dive in. Uh, and I will save my question for later. Maybe I'll email you and ask you more about the Syrian process because uh, I'm still very interested to know more about that. Uh, but I would like to really thank, thank uh, uh, Fidel for joining us for this discussion and Katrina for, for uh, presenting them. Um, and everything. Uh, and thank you, Rory, for facilitating to have this, uh, like this amazing talk with Monica and congratulations again. Uh, and yeah, thank you very much for everyone for attending and I'll see you next after track. Well, can I wish you all the best and lots of luck to those of you who are doing your PhDs. It's thank a old journey. Um, and when I was writing the book, all I could think about was you guys and how you're doing this day and daily. So my heart is with you and good luck and stay safe.